Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 167th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Anju Grossman. My friends call me JAG. I'm the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in a variety of ways, including graphic novels and animated videos. Today, we are joined by Heather McDonald. Before I even begin to introduce our guest, I want to remind all of you who are watching us on Zoom, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, you can go ahead, get started. Uh, use the comment bar to type in your questions, and we're going to try to get to as many of them as we can. Our guest, Heather McDonald, is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, a contributing editor at City Journal, and the 2005 recipient of the Bradley Prize. Her work covers a range of topics from higher education and immigration to policing and race relations, um, with writings that have appeared in publications including the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and the New York Times. She is the author of six critically acclaimed books, including The Diversity Delusion, The War on Cops, and her latest book, When Race Trumps Merit. I'm feeling very Vanna White, so I'll put those down. Um, uh, Heather, thank you for joining us. Jennifer, it is so great to be on Atlas Society Asks. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, it's a great honor for us, too. Um, I would love to cover all of your books, but uh, given that we've only got an hour and I do want to try to devote some of that to audience questions, uh, let's dive right in to your latest, When Race Trumps Merit, How, how the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. Um, I thought this was just really a remarkable book. Um, and as the author of a cardiologist and the sister of a gynecologist, I was particularly dismayed uh, by the developments that you covered in your chapter, Medicine's Racial Reckoning. You write that, quote, the post-George Floyd racial reckoning hit the field of medicine like an earthquake. Uh, the basic premise of the push appears to be that if 13% of the population is black, but only 5% or whatever percent of doctors is black, then the reason is racism. Am I, am I getting this right? I know I'm just incredibly oversimplifying it. Uh, but if so, what is being proposed to fix uh, this disparity without compromising patient care, not to mention medical research um, and all of the life-saving advances that depend on it. Well, I wish you were simplifying, Jennifer, but you're not. You stated it absolutely accurately. This is the principle that is now taking down virtually all of Western civilization, which is that if any institution does not contain a proportional representation of Blacks, whether it's uh, an, uh, if it's an underrepresentation of Blacks in the case of meritocratic institutions like a medical school, or a hospital uh, medical staff, or, or an overrepresentation of Blacks uh, in the prison system, then that institution is by definition racist. The only allowable explanation 
for that underrepresentation of blacks in meritocratic institutions or overrepresentation of blacks in the criminal justice system is racism. You are not allowed to talk about academic skills gaps and the massive behavioral disparities, criminal commission disparities that lead in a completely constitutional colorblind fashion to the overrepresentation of blacks in prison. And the solutions that are being proposed for this is not to get rid of the academic skills gaps. It's not to uh, have, have school choice or you know address family breakdown. No, it's to lower standards. It's to lower standards for admissions to meritocratic institutions, whether it's to medical school, uh, to receive a grant in oncology or neurology or in cardiology, or it's to lower standards or eviscerate standards for criminal offending. This is why prosecutors across the country, whether it's George Gascon in Los Angeles, uh, Pamela Price in, in Oakland, California, Alvin Bragg in, in New York City or Kim Fox in Chicago have declared entire categories of crime off limits. They're simply not prosecuting crime because doing so in a colorblind manner will have a disparate impact on black criminals. When it comes to medicine, so what does that lowered standard approach look like? Are we talking about uh, eliminating the MCATs because we just did have that Supreme Court decision, of course, California had the proposition that that these racial preferences uh, were, were not supposed to be legal. So practically, what does it come down to? Well, what it has come down to at this point, Jennifer, is completely different standards of admission for Black medical student applicants and white and Asian student applicants. Black medical school applicants are admitted with MCAT scores that would be automatically disqualifying if presented by whites and Asians. And once in school with that vast academic skills gap, predictably and inevitably, uh, black medical students fall behind in their classes. Nobody is saying that black students should not go to college or should not go to medical school. What opponents of racial preferences such as myself are saying is that they should go to schools on the same basis as their peers, which is for schools to which they are academically qualified. So if you're if you're qualified to go to a state school medical uh, school, that's where you should be admitted. You should not, because you're black, be catapulted into Harvard Medical School because you're not going to be able to catch up. So what happens is the black medical students, having been admitted with vastly lower academic skills, fall behind in their classes, and they are now uh, disproportionately were disproportionately at the bottom of the scale when it came to step one of the medical school licensing exam. This is an exam that comes at the end of the second year of loss of medical school that tests students' basic knowledge of science processes of anatomy, physiology, drug interactions, uh, and, and Blacks were getting very poor grades on that step one of the licensing exam to become a doctor. Let's just, you know, remember what this is all about. And so the board that administers the exam said, okay, we'll, we'll throw out the scores. <laughs> we'll no so longer score it. Is we'll that done or is that a proposal? No, it's done. It happened in January of 2021. And so now it's just a pass fail. So you have no idea who's at the top of this class and who barely squeaked through to pass the exam. The hospital residencies that are choosing residents have no idea uh, who are the students that are barely hanging on and selecting who gets into the highly competitive residencies like orthopedic surgery. And the pressure is on throughout. I mean, we're now changing standards for medical honor societies. 
this, the pressure will be on to change the standards for step two of the licensing exam. And, and hospitals are under enormous pressure. Medical school faculties are under enormous pressure to hire uh, black doctors to be there regardless of their qualifications. The science granting uh, uh, agencies of the federal government, the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, they are now giving out scientific grants, not on the basis of whether this is the most accomplished neurologist who has the best hope of curing Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. They're giving out medical grants on the basis of race. So uh, you devote five chapters to how disparate impact analysis is also sweeping the arts from symphonies to operas, to ballet, to theater, to classical music from the way uh, that you write about classical music with uh, such feeling and sophistication. I have to assume that it's a particular passion of yours. It is, it is the most important thing in my life. I, um, I grew up playing the piano. My father played much better than I did. He's, he was able to play Chopin ballads the scherzi, uh, things that he played music minus one, the Schumann piano concerto, something I would never in a billion years have been able to play. But uh, I was very lucky. He took us to the LA Philharmonic matinee concerts on Sunday when it was still at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in the downtown Los Angeles. Uh, and since then, uh, there's nothing that gives me more profound insight into human experience than classical music. Not that I don't adore the American songbook and, and jazz. And I had my stint in the 60s with acid rock and, and uh, countercultural music, but I keep coming back again and again to classical music. Favorite composer? Oh, it's whatever I'm listening to at the time, really. I mean, I just, uh, this is what's so astounding about classical music is that it is contains just more riches than one can ever hope to consume in one's lifetime. And I, I get very depressed that we perform the same limited number of great canonical works over and over again, ignoring the vast universe of classical music. But I mean, if you put a gun to my head, I may have to say that Mozart's De Ponte operas are for me the, the highest experience of, of sublimity and joy and pathos. Although the St. Matthew Passion by Bach comes in very close, the Schubert song cycle. So I, I, I don't get me started, you know, <laughs> solo piano music is about the most painful expression of eros and longing that I know. So it's just, it's all too wonderful. Uh, so you are describing how as a child, you were exposed to this. Your father was playing the piano on a very um, high level. Uh, your home was infused with classical music. And one of the takeaways, I mean, teeing off what we were talking about before, which is that, you know, you just can't sort of go to the end and say, oh, there, there aren't enough uh blacks in the symphony or there aren't enough you have to kind of go back to the beginning and say are we are we actually creating the supply of candidates and um you talk about sort of the cultural aspects of valuing uh, academic achievement but also just exposure to music and um whether that comes in in the family or whether that comes in um, school music instruction you talk about how that's being uh, cut back. So um, if this disparate 
impact analysis is the driver, then what are, again, some of the recommendations and also even some of the things that have already been implemented to make orchestral composition more uh, representative of Blacks or blind auditions going by the wayside or they gone, uh, the re requirement to read musical scores, what's, go what's going on? Well, yes, there was a very significant proposal in the in the summer of George Floyd mass psychosis that gripped the country from the New York Times uh, lead classical music critic at the time, Anthony Tomasini, saying that orchestra auditions should be de-blinded. That means rather than having the identity of the person auditioning for that second violin seat uh, concealed behind a screen, the screen should be removed so that the people choosing the, the performers for the empty seat in an orchestra can choose on the basis of race. Uh, one orchestra is moving in that direction, whether this catches on, I, I don't know. Um, but the pressure is, again, it's on, it's on, it's on. And what the musical institutions have done, you know, they were all in absolute and remain in dire financial straits during the absurd pandemic shutdowns. Peter Gelb, the general manager of the Metropolitan Opera in New York City, was telling his, his orchestra musicians, his chorus, you're going to have to basically not be paid for a year because if we, if we put out any salary, we'd go under. There will be no more Metropolitan Opera. At the same time, Peter Gelb found the money to hire the first ever chief diversity officer for the New York, for the Metropolitan Opera to fight against systemic racism. This was a woman who came out of the Harvard Law School. She has no opera background, no musical background, she'll be paid in the high four figures because, uh, for, you know, 400,000 K, whatever, because coming from Harvard Law School as an administrator there, she would have had very, very high salary. Orchestras are hiring these people that are completely useless. Here's what they should be doing. If you want to create the pipeline, recreate musical education. One of the privileges I had in writing this book was talking to some Black uh, orchestral musicians and conductors. One guy, John McLaughlin Williams, who I just adore, he's he's made a career out of, of, of conducting and recording really, really obscure early 20th century American composers. I, I have to say, Jennifer, I do know a lot of music. <laughs> I had heard of none of these people, you know, whether it's Nicholas Flagello, Rossello, uh, Hadley. These are people that have been completely disappeared. He records them, he's black, these are white composers and he recorded them like in the early 1990s with the Ukrainian National Symphony. He was raised by parents that had both gone to Howard University. They had classical music in the home uh, and, and they taught him that all music is good. You have as much right to access Bach as you do uh, William Grant Still or Joplin. All of it is available to you. I talked to Joseph Striplin a black violinist who grew up in Detroit in the 1940s. He said, I grew up with a classic single mother home, but he went to a great Detroit public school cast technical that had like three different orchestras. And so he was learning to play the violin and he heard the people in the violin section of his school orchestra that were getting private lessons. He said, whoa, they're really good. I better practice a lot harder. But he said, we grew up in a world where classical music was in the culture. Now it's completely vacant. It, it is an alien idiom. It is, in fact, sadly repellent to many people. These classical music organizations, rather than nattering on about 
their specious, phony, non-existent racism because it does not exist, Jennifer. There is no classical music organization today that is discriminating against Blacks. The opposite is true. What they should be doing is saying, we're going into the schools. We are going to make our music available to create an audience and create people who want to become classical music organizations, a part of an organization. Instead, all they're doing is the same preposterous virtue signaling that we saw out of college presidents, that we saw out of heads of banks, out of heads of corporations, um, you know, uh, the scientific- And then, yeah, also the, 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 the just complete silence and cowardice when uh, cancel culture comes from for um, teachers and people who try to, you know, actually do their job and um, do the right thing. Uh, one more question on, on music, because it is a passion of yours and mine. Beethoven appears to have been singled out for particular scrutiny uh, with one critic saying that his ninth symphony is no more a masterpiece than Esperanza Spalding's 12 Little Spells, uh, which I guess is a jazz composition about body parts. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Ayn Rand's work or The Fountainhead in particular, uh, in which critics conspire actually to promote a play titled No Skin Off your nose, even though they actually know that it's terrible. Uh, is there a similar sort of Ellsworth Tui-esque dynamic going on here to assault uh, artistic excellence and beauty? Yeah, I think there's a definite hatred for greatness and, and sublimity. There's hatred for a Western civilization deemed too white and too male. And this quote that you gave is, is not from a critic. He's actually a, an academic. He's a He's a musicologist at Hunter College that is now celebrated and heralded across the music profession. Alex Ross has, has lauded this guy. He's got this most insane theory about a uh, music theorist, Heinrich Schenker. And, and he's this the, the, the musicologist, Philip Ewell, has whiteness on his brain. The guy is absolutely obsessed. Uh, and to, for him to make that statement about Beethoven, it's absurd. I'm sorry. I know we're all supposed to be sort of relativistic about musical taste, and I'm not allowed to say that there is more depth and sorrow and human experience in, in the Bach cantatas than there is in gangster rap. I'm not allowed to say that, but I'm sorry. There are- You can say it here. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. There are objective things yet to dismiss Beethoven and to say you can't compare him to Esmeralda Spalding, who is a lightweight, is absurd. It is, it is literally absurd, uh, and yet that is going on. Now, there is you know, a lot of programming of Black composers. I reviewed a, an, a, a concert at the New York Philharmonic that was on explicitly Black liberation themes, and I went, I'll be honest, Jennifer, uh, with a predisposition, assuming that I would pan the, the concert, but I actually enjoyed it. And there was a wonderful symphony number two by William Price Still that that um, had in its second movement, it, it's, it sounds like it's right out of uh, one of the great American classic songbook tunes. And, uh, and there was another oratorio um, by Hale Stork that was very good. 
but there's also some mediocrities that are getting programmed, both contemporary and in the past. And the two that drive me the most insane is Joseph Bologna, an 18th century French uh, composer in the in the court of Marie Antoinette and, and Louis the Sixteenth. Uh, and I just have written a devastating review, I have to say, of the of the of the completely specious movie about him that came out early this year. And then Florence Price, she was a black composer of the 1930s. Her music is so banal, it is so repetitive, and students are being taught that there is no difference between her or Joseph Bologna and, and Schubert or uh, you know Stravinsky or, or, or Rachmaninoff. I'm sorry, one of the roles of artists and the people who run artistic organizations is connoisseurship. They cannot be relativists. They have to say, no, there are actual differences in achievement and in merit and in excellence. And now if you're gonna do that and what you're talking about is white achievers and creators, that is racist according to the dominant narrative. Before moving on for, from the arts, you covered how the diversity agenda is affecting philanthropy and volunteering in the arts. And there was one example that you shared that I found particularly kind of heart-wrenching, and that was the Chicago Art Institute's abolishing of its docent program because it was deemed too white. Can you share with our viewers a little bit about what happened? Well, I'm going to speak very frankly here, Jennifer. We are living through a period of white culling. I'm sorry, that's it. And whites just take it. I mean, it is just amazing the suicidal quality of Western civilization. Every single day we hear about white supremacy, which is not true. We were a white supremacist country. I have no problem admitting that. We were an apartheid country. We treated blacks appallingly cruelly, gratuitously cruelly, nastily up until very recently. But the opposite is the case now. The reality is, is black privilege, not white privilege. And whites are being removed. I mean, this is what racial preference is all about. Finally, the Supreme Court acknowledged that racial preferences are always a zero sum game. It, you, there's no way for it not to be a zero sum game. For every poorly qualified racial preference so-called beneficiary that you're nominating and elevating, you're keeping out more objectively qualified white and Asian applicants. And so what's going on, what went on at the Art Institute of Chicago, which is one of the greatest museums in the world, and I often tell people, if you visit, go to the little corridor of French 18th century Ancien Regime pastel portraits by, by De La Tour, by Chardin, they're just amazing. Um, and yet the Art Institute of Chicago under its completely foolish idiot head, James Rondeau, canceled its entire docent program of, of almost a hundred volunteer educators who, who spent years getting what was in essence an MA education, studying diversity up the gazoo so they could bring Chicago school children into the Art Institute and teach them about art. So what's their problem? They were white. Being female in this case wasn't intersectional enough. It didn't save them from getting axed. So, so Rondeau axed the entire docent program. They were getting free labor, labor of love, and replaced them, said he replaced them with six 
paid uh, part-time volunteers chosen on the basis of racial equity. So we know what that means. Uh, and, and the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento has also bragged about getting rid of its white docents, not entirely, but lowering the number. Uh, and basically, this is just a metaphor, synecdoche, for what's going on across our institutions. And white people are so well-meaning and so passive before all of this, they just sort of turn their eyes away. I think that's true, but I think at, uh, you know, what's also happening is that when you continue to accuse people of white supremacy where no one exists, uh, so first of all, there's sort of a hyperinflation of all of these terms. Um, when you, you know, like during the Tea Party, you uh, would accuse people who were protesting against higher taxes and, you know, socialized medicine, that, that they're racist. Uh, you, you drive people underground. And yes, I think that they can come back in a more radicalized form. And you actually might end up with a uh, renaissance or resurgence of, um, of white supremacy or not white nationalism or what have you, because it's just gone so overboard. It's absolutely the case. And to be perfectly honest, Jennifer, it would be a logical conclusion. I don't see why every other group gets white gets identity politics, but not whites. Uh, there's, you know, there's no rational basis for excluding them. So well, I think a much better model is individualism and merit um, and objectivity. Uh, our philosophy is objectivism, so that the relative standards and the relative judgments have got to go. All right, part three of when race trumps merit covers how uh, it the in in your book you cover how disparate impact analysis has its most concrete impact on the criminal justice system, where every disparity in arrest or incarceration rates is now attributed to racism. Um, in the chapter on double standards, you mentioned that despite all of the attention to officers killing unarmed Blacks, this was eye-opening to me. A police officer is 400 times as likely to be killed by a Black suspect as an unarmed Black is to be killed by a police officer. Uh, talk a little bit more about this double standard and what are the implications if uh, society looks away when law enforcement is tacked? Well, we've seen it. Uh, 2020 was the largest single increase in homicide in this nation's history, 29%. Uh, that's an astounding one-year leap. And that's all because of the George Floyd demonization of the police. The police backed off of policing. You know, they were being shot at with laser guns and, and, and cop cars destroyed, precincts burned down to the ground. Uh, the object of, of constant vicious attacks and, and insult and, and attacks, rhetorical attacks as well. Uh, president Biden, when he was running for president the first time around and, and throughout his presidency, continues to say that black parents are right to fear that their children will be killed by a cop every time they step outside. That's completely wrong. Yes, uh, it is dangerous to, as, as the Kansas City mayor said recently, existing while black is dangerous in this country. What the Kansas City mayor meant was, oh, because white people are gunning black people down all the time. No, a, a, apart from this tragic recent shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, which is horrible and sickening, 
Uh, but that is sorry, it's not the way black people are dying. Black juveniles in the post George Floyd era are being shot at 100 times the rate of white juveniles. 100 times, Jennifer, who's shooting them? Other blacks. Other blacks, they're not being killed by whites. If they're being killed by whites, we would have heard about every single one of those shootings and they're not being shot by the cops. You know, we hear about white supremacy. Here's another statistic. We all hear, oh, hate crimes against, against blacks by whites. If you look at the entire universe of interracial violence between blacks and whites and whites and blacks, blacks commit 87% of all interracial violence between blacks and whites and whites and blacks. A black is 35 times more likely to commit an act of violence against a white person as a white person is to commit an act of violence against a black person. And we've all seen the videos of the flash mobs on the Magnificent Mile in Chicago, uh, people getting beaten up. We've seen the videos of these frail elderly Asian people in the Bay Area and other, other places in California getting beaten up. And we all pretend we're not seeing it. It's all black people. <laughs> it's not whites. And yet when the one there was the one spa shooting in Atlanta, Georgia by a tormented uh, Christian young man who, who could not, he felt he could not control his sexual urges and he'd been using prostitutes. So he shot some of the prostitutes that he'd been using in Atlanta. And this was immediately turned into an anti-white, anti-Asian hate crime. It was not. It was not about race. He was on his way to go to Florida porn studios to shoot them up down there. Those were not Asians. But the only the only anti-Asian crimes we were talking about at the time was this one committed by a white guy. Uh, so everything we're saying about our criminal justice system today is completely the opposite. The, the police are actually the government agency that most cares about Black lives. The Black Lives Matter activists don't give a damn. There are dozens of Black children that are being gunned down every year, toddlers, in their beds, on their front porches, in their parents' cars. They're being shot through the head, shot through the lungs, shot through the pancreas by Black thugs committing drive-by shootings. We have never been urged to say their names because the black activists don't give a damn about black victims, except in the exceedingly rare instance when a, a cop or a white person shoots a black. So uh, let's mix it up. As previously mentioned, we're not going to be able to talk about all of your books, but uh, and I wish I really had more time to cover the war on cops. Um, one of my main takeaways is that at the end of the day, the biggest casualties, as you were saying, are the inner city blacks who bear the brunt of violent crime when proactive policing is curtailed. Um, I did notice that the book attracted some criticism in libertarian circles, uh, including the Cato Institute. Among other things, they take issue with your uh, calling Black Lives Matter a fraud. I don't know if they might be willing to reconsider that criticism. Uh, and you're characterizing the New York Times as serving up anti-police propaganda. I think the most uh, substantive criticism appears to be your defense of stop and frisk. Uh, have you seen that criticism? Any defense uh, or thoughts on it? Well, the Cato Institute adopts the usual specious benchmark for analyzing criminal police activity. Uh, and this is the benchmark used by the mainstream media and every anti-cop activist, which is to compare police data 
to population data. So let's look at New York City. Uh, blacks are about 22% of the population and they make up about 53% of all police pedestrian stops. So yes, there's a disparity there. Blacks are stopped at, at at least twice the rate of the representation of the population. So Al Sharpton and, and Cato say, okay, the police are racist, but the police are not developing their, their deployment tactics and deciding where to go after drive-by shootings based on population ratios. They go where crime is happening and where, where people are being victimized. Here's the relevant statistic for determining whether that stop rate is racially disproportionate. Who's committing the drive-by shootings in New York? And though Blacks are 22% of the population, they commit up to three quarters of all drive-by shootings in New York. If you add Hispanic shootings to Black shootings, you account for about 100% of all drive-by shootings. And that is true in every big American city. The face- Yeah, I mean, I, in fairness, I do think that Cato, what, did acknowledge that uh, there there are these uh, really dramatic disparities. Um, their push seemed to be more on the constitutional aspect and whether this was um, someone who was suspicious or someone or was this a pretext of someone acting suspiciously. So, well, I'm, I, not, gonna, I'm not going to justify unconstitutional stops. But the technique is constitutional, as Cato well knows, and I'm not saying it does is claimed otherwise, but it is a constitutional power that the police have to uh, stop somebody custodially so that you're not free to leave based on reasonable suspicion that there's suspicious, you know, crime behavior in the works. Uh, so one can debate empirically uh, whether there were too many stops and whether they were being done unconstitutionally, I would say that the police expert that the plaintiffs funded by massive pro bono efforts against the NYPD by the most elite law firms in the in the city, Paul Weiss and and you know Covington and Burling, against the overstaffed, overmatched police attorneys, um, it, Jeffrey Fagan, a, a law professor at Columbia, his his statistical techniques were, were lousy. It was, it was absurd. He was not using the right type of data. Um, but what we see what happens when the police back off of proactive policing is criminals get emboldened and crime goes up. We saw that after the Michael Brown shooting uh, in August of 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri. I called it the Ferguson effect. You had the largest two-year increase in homicide in the nation's history. And then you had the George Floyd or the Minneapolis effect, which was even worse. Um, so it is incredibly humiliating, scary, uncomfortable to be stopped when you are innocent of a crime. That is no question that is the case. Uh, but it is sadly a crime tax that Blacks face. As long as the crime rate is so exponentially higher in the Black population, there is a, a greater chance statistically that a law-abiding Black guy is going to be stopped at some point in his life because he matches the suspect description. The solution to that is not to say to the police back off with proactive stops. It's to say, you know, who, somebody, we've got to get this crime rate down. Right, and I, I think you also pointed out that one of the barriers to that is a, is a cultural factor that uh, there is an unwillingness to, to work with the police and to, um, to give them information that would help them solve these crimes and get people off the streets. Okay. We are 
overloaded with questions. I'm not going to say overloaded because we love our questions. It makes my job easier. Uh, so we'll try to get to as many of them as we can. Maybe we'll kind of keep it more rapid fire. Um, my modern goal on Instagram was first to the gate, and he wants to know your thoughts on the recent ruling in the Harvard admissions scandal. Do you think the schools are just going to find workarounds? Yes, I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. A, they are in the process, they are renaming all their diversity uh, and inclusion sinecure non-entities, you know, it is something that doesn't uh, so immediately suggest this is race. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a pessimist and a skeptic by heart, so take that into account. Um, <clears throat> but obviously the Roberts majority opinion did leave open a very large loophole, <coughs> excuse me, schools are already doing so-called holistic admissions, which is to say, <clears throat> we're going to read your essay and you're going to tell us about how oppressed you are as a Black person and Black student in America. And we're not going to say that's why we're admitting you, but that is why we're admitting you. And that's going that's going to go even more uh, aggressively in the future. So it's going to be a very interesting thing. And I haven't really been able to game theory it out because the schools don't want to leave any tracks. And to the extent that they still use academic test scores like the SATs. And if a plaintiff can get his hands on those and still show these massive gaps in the scores that are being used to admit blacks versus whites and Asians, that will suggest ongoing racial preferences. But if the schools get rid of them entirely and some systems have, University of California has actually banned the submission of SATs they won't have any ability to rank their students, which they want to do. They may claim that these test scores don't measure anything, but they use them to have a degree of precision out to 0.001%. So it puts the schools up to a very difficult choice, which I personally really relish and, and, and will enjoy watching how they twist in the wind to try to figure this thing out. All right, uh, Jackie Ada on Twitter says, uh... What's the purpose behind race-based admissions? It cannot be to promote minorities because Asian Americans are also discriminated against. Well, it's to it's because we are worried that there's not enough blacks. There's a, a term in the academic world and beyond underrepresented minorities that gets I see to URMs. So Asians are now seen as white adjacent, but they're, they're not underrepresented, they're overrepresented. Here's what it means. Here's a little translation key. What students of color means is underperforming students. <laughs> and all these Asians that want to be part of the elite, they hand up their, put up their hands and say, please, please, sir, can we be a student of color? And the, the administrator says, no, 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 you are not a student of color because you're whooping everybody's ass on campus. So the purpose is not to get in any old minority, it's to get in Blacks and to a lesser extent Hispanics. And the elites are terrified that the academic skills gap is never going to close. They are preemptively putting out the only allowable explanation for the academic skills or for lack of racial proportionality, which is racism, because they're terrified of a cultural explanation and they're sure as hell terrified of a heritability explanation. Well, they're working pretty hard to uh, make sure that the skill gap doesn't closed by um, trying to thwart all attempts of uh, offering school choice and competition and education at every turn. Okay, um, Raj, Raja Para 
Miss Waron asks suggestions on the next book when gender trumps merit. Have you considered this disparity? We're probably not going to get to this, but actually you talk about it a lot here. Yeah. Um, white females are an absolute scourge. You know, the, the university now, one of the reasons the university is just going downhill so much is the domination. It's feminized. Uh, poll after poll shows that females are the ones that are pushing for the restrictions on free speech. They're the ones who think it's more important to take into account alleged harm, psychological harm from harmful words or something makes you want to throw up. Uh, there's the idea that these students are actually at risk from hearing about, you know, a, a different non-orthodox non explanation for racial disparities, say, is completely specious. And any adult that goes along with it is just enabling uh, self-regarded self narcissism and whining pusillanimousness. Uh, but, but, the, but the more that the universities become feminized, the more they trend left, the more they hate objectivity, free discourse, scholarly uh, discovery, no matter where it takes. So yeah, females, white females in particular, they're, they're a total scourge. And there are obviously exceptions, uh, but the few remaining Hopefully, present company, the two of yes, us. Yes, absolutely. I will. I will include you, and we'll hope that I get nominated too, Jennifer. Yes, but um, right. but you know, gonna... economics is still male dominated, so it's still a little more rational philosophy. The feminists are all complaining that philosophy is too male dominated, but you know, so you can you can sort of predict which way a discipline is going by looking at the demographic shift. Well, if they wanted philosophy to be a little less male dominated, maybe they'll give Ayn Rand a second look. I'm not going to hold my breath, um, but your your answer on uh, on gender actually is going to inspire me to jump back into one of the questions that I had for you. Uh, Greg Lukianoff, co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, previous guest on this show, he and Jonathan Haidt uh, advanced the idea that overprotective parenting has contributed to this very fragile um, culture on campus where students prioritize safety over free speech. I thought that the argument was pretty compelling, but you take issue with it and saying that uh, campus intolerance is not, is, is at root not a psychological phenomenon, but an ideological one. Well, first of all, um, his, as, as I respect Jonathan Haidt very much and, and Greg Lukianoff, but it doesn't comport with the facts. Uh, despite you know my recent diatribe against white females, uh, let's be honest, blacks on campuses are pretty damn expert as well in leveraging the you know harm card and playing the victim card. And let's be honest, Jennifer, they are not uh, subject to overparenting. We wish they had more parenting. Uh, that is not their problem. And as far as white students go, uh, white males have the same parents as white females. But the call for shutdown of free speech is overwhelmingly coming from the white females, not the white males. So I yes, but the but white males and the white females are both subject to this same indoctrination. So why is it not affecting the guys or affecting the girls more? Well, exactly. But that's my point. It's not the parenting. It's the ideology that is celebrating victimhood. If it was just a function of having being overparented, you would expect white males on campus to be as vocal in calling for excluding 
uh, speech they don't like, but they're not. This is, but they have the same parents as their sisters. If it's their sisters that are engaged in this. So I see this as more, it's an ideology that is based on hatred, as I said before, of a civilization deemed too white and too male. All right, we're gonna jump back into these many, many questions. And I am just going to let you guys know in advance, there's no way that we're going to get to all of these in the last uh, 12 minutes or so that we have. Um, George Alexopoulos on Facebook asks, do you believe there is currently a competency crisis? Is there a single source or multiple factors? Well, yeah, I, I think that we're we're inevitably going to be facing the deterioration of public service, of the services we can expect from corporations. There will be more errors made because we are determined to promote people, again, on the basis of skin color, uh, not on the basis of competence. And it's happening everywhere. I'm particularly worried about the judiciary. Biden announced at the start of his presidency that he was not going to be submitting his judicial appointments to the ABA for preclearance because the ABA, according to Biden's spokesman, didn't care enough about diversity. Well, this is an absurd claim. The ABA is obsessed with diversity. It's all it talks about. And so what Biden was signaling was my, my judicial nominees, yes, they're gonna be diverse, but they're gonna be so mediocre that even the diversity obsessed ABA will not give them that it's rubber stamp. So he's putting people on the bench that are not the best choices in the country. And this matters, the quality of our jurisprudence matters to private parties and being able to plan commercial transactions based on clear legal rules set down in the case law. It matters to the constitutional integrity of our country. And we're gonna see this in, in medicine. We've already, I, there's a few studies that I've been told about that are actually trying to empirically measure what happens when you uh, promote doctors in hospitals on the basis of race? And as you can expect, it's not a pretty picture. Uh, so yes, China is not obsessed with identity politics. It obviously has its massive economic and political problems, but in the field of education and technology, all it cares about is competence. Meanwhile, we are tearing down gifted and talented programs across the country uh, preventing gifted students from advancing, accelerating in math for one reason and one reason only. There's not enough blacks in those programs. Everything is coming down. If we are not prepared to say that the reason for our racial disparities is not racism, it's the skills gap and behaviors gap, I can tell you, George, it is all coming down. And yes, we will have a complete competency crisis. All right, uh, we've been talking about various forms of privilege. I'm going to assert some family privilege. There is a questioner on Zoom, Melanie Grossman, as you might imagine, she is related. And uh, she says, I am familiar with the academic community and I would say there are many top-notch doctors coming through the system now. I would also say that some of the training programs um, offer summer internships in minority neighborhoods. All of this is good. We need to hear about some of the positive ways in which this is working in medicine. Are there any positive aspects of these um, initiatives to try to offer additional training or mentoring or what have you? 
Well, that's fine. I don't object to outreach in, in communities, but I can tell you it's been going on for a long time. And I would also say that a doctor's comparative advantage is not social justice work. Uh, I think that doctors should be involved in applying their medical knowledge to solving the problems of biology and on and our, you know, the, the terrible diseases that we have conquered so extraordinarily thanks to the scientific method, but they continue to afflict us. So to the extent that doctors are being told, you know, they, they have to spend time on their diversity, equity, inclusion statements to get promoted. Uh, I think that's a complete waste of time. And yes, of course, there's still good doctors coming through, but I hear from doctors all the time, uh, people working on in cancer labs at, at Ivy League schools that are saying, I'm spending more time trying to explain how my work on cell signaling and nematodes has a diversity upside to it than I am actually doing basic research. So of course there's still good things happening, but the scientific journals are completely captured by the idea that science is racist, that medicine is racist. They are selecting articles to publish based on the race of the, of the authors who, who's being cited. Are you citing enough black articles? So it's, it's uh, I, I am not at all sanguine about what's happening it's, as is obvious by now. All right. So, uh, Robert Bindonato, I see you there, but your questions are a little long, so I'm not going to be able to um, to get to them. Uh, I am actually going to jump back into uh, some of the questions that I had prepared for you that I wanted to be able to try to um, get to, maybe to just kind of uh, wrap things up. Well, oh no, this one. One of our big themes at the Atlas Society is postmodernism, uh, which we try to make accessible with our pocket guide to postmodernism, our animated video, My Name is Postmodernism. You mentioned Michelle Foucault, Dis Discipline and Punish, uh, as academia's most celebrated book on incarceration. I was not familiar with it. So how have Foucault and others influenced modern incarceration theory? Well, Foucault is a strange character. I mean, his that book was actually- That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, 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 it had, I'm told that actually- he is not at all trustworthy as a historian. And I do not have the historical knowledge to be able to test uh, what he's claiming. But he starts out with an extremely vivid uh, juxtaposition. He describes an absolutely gruesome uh, act of torture in early Renaissance Europe. I don't think it may be the 15th century, but it's completely grotesque and, and chilling and, and you know nauseating the 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 vivid destruction of the bones and the flesh and the, and the infliction of pain. Um, and he contrasts that to our modern uh, punitive system, which is A, it's sort of off limits. It's not a public display and it's all just, it's incarceration. Um, you, we, don't, we don't use physical abuse any longer. And he calls it the panopticon. He says that these, our modern penitentiaries are based on a surveillance system where you know you have the ability and and Jeremy Bentham, the utilitarian philosopher of of the 18th 19th century, designed some of these where the guards can sort of observe the entire penitentiary from one spot. He analogized that to all of modern society, which is trying to control 
behavior through a sort of invisible state. Um, and, you know, it that one contrast between the idea of punishment as a public display versus what we have now, which is more of sort of a surveillance state. It's interesting, of course, we were also back in the 15th and 16th, 17th century before we had habeas corpus, people were being thrown away into the dungeon moat and not being seen for the next 30 years until they died if, if they lived that long. So again, these are not really perfect uh, comparisons he was drawing. What, how he, Foucault is influenced now in a very uh, bad way. There's a, a, a law professor at Columbia, Bernard Harcourt, and he has used Foucault to completely attack something known as broken windows policing, which is the idea that public order matters, that people in communities want orderly communities. They don't want litter. They don't want people loitering. They don't want kids hanging out by hundreds, fighting with each other, smoking weed, trespassing, uh, and that, that the police should pay attention to this. They shouldn't necessarily arrest everybody, but public order matters. Harcourt, Harcourt says that is racially oppressive. It's just another way of, of uh, criminalizing nonconformity. And that's just not the case. I've spent so much time, Jennifer, in inner city police community meetings in Har Harlem and the Bronx and south side of Chicago, far, far west side of Chicago. What those good law abiding people yearn for is a safe orderly environment that is not taken over by thugs. We didn't have much time to talk about this excellent book, The Diversity Delusion. And I also want to just commend for all three of these, um, the narrators that you've selected are really excellent and just make it an enjoyable um, experience. But you provide an example of hysterics taking place on campus, um, your own harrowing experience at Claremont College. Uh, what happened briefly? Well, uh, this was with the war on cops. I was supposed to talk there in, I think, maybe 2016. I can't remember, maybe 2017, um, on policing and the Black Lives Matter narrative. And I was going to argue that, no, the police are not systemically racist. There's not an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of Black men. That's an optical illusion created by selective press coverage. Um, and so the students there decided that I was simply a Black, a fascist, homophobe, transphobe, Islamophobe, I don't know, they came up with these, um, and that I was not allowed to speak. So they shut down the auditorium. They wouldn't allow anybody in to hear me. So I spoke to an empty hall, and then eventually the police decided it wasn't safe for me to be there because the students were all on the outside banging on the glass panels and stuff. So I was escorted out through the kitchen. <laughs> um, but it was, you know, it's just, it's, just, just simply depressing, Jennifer, to experience the campus mob up close, to hear the level of hysteria. These are the most privileged individuals in human history, simply by virtue of being on an American college campus and having access to the thing that Faust sold his soul for, which is knowledge. And, and yet they all think of themselves as victims and oppressed. It's, it's absolutely disgusting. And what's even more disgusting is that the campus faculty and administrators and presidents encourage them in that fantastical delusion, which will only handicap them from the rest of, for the rest of their lives. Well, as Ayn Rand says, you can evade reality, but you cannot evade the consequences of evading reality. So we shall see how all of this uh, plays out. 
Heather, I admire your um, remarkably prolific ability to uh, publish uh, on a annual, every other year, all of your articles. Uh, what is next for you? What's the best way to keep track of your work? And what can our audience do to support you? Oh, thank you so much. Well, you know, I hate this, but it would be great. Buy the book, my most recent book. When we Definitely. What? Definitely buy these books. These were, these were excellent. Oh, thank you. So that, that's the number one, buy race, Rump's Merit. Um, and they can follow me, I think, most easily. I have a Twitter account, although I confess I don't run it. It really is basically just posting all my things and appearances and stuff. So that's probably the easy. And I so not run it that I can't even tell you what the damn Twitter handle is. It's some weird acronym or, you know, uh, shortening of my well, name. Well, if you just Google Heather McDonald, I think it, Twitter, if you use that, probably still pulls things up. I don't, I don't know when this full X transition is going to happen, but that you can get me that way. There's also Manhattan Institute website uh, that also. All right. Good. Well, we will, um, one of our gremlins will pull that, put it in the threads. Uh, thank you, Heather. Again, that invitation stands. Hope to get you up to Malibu one of these days. I am <laughs> there, Jennifer. You don't have to. All right. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you who joined us. Apologies for not being able to get to all of your excellent questions. As you can see, I'm quite a fan of these books and uh, I had taken a lot of notes and I wanted to ask a lot of questions. Special shout out to some of the newcomers who have started to watch us and join us every Wednesday afternoon. And a particular thank you to those of you who are just watching who aren't just partaking, who aren't just consuming, but have actually stepped up and made a tax-deductible donation uh, to support our work, to be able to bring you more of this. So I know there aren't a lot of freeloaders in our community, so uh, maybe you've just forgotten. If you haven't yet stepped up and made that donation, you can do it at atlassociety.org. And if you're new, that will be matched. And that support is what is enabling us to bring you, again, another great episode. Next week, I'm going to be joined by former sportscaster Michelle Tafoya. She's going to share her um, increasing uh, disenchantment with uh, the advance of wokeness in the sports world and why that got her to leave that um, field and create her Let's Get Sane Substack and Sideline Sanity podcast. So hope to see you guys there. Thanks.